This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Doug Collum. Welcome, everybody, to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. As usual, we are broadcasting live from the Wharton San Francisco campus. I have to say it was like hand-to-hand combat getting in here today. (laughs) I drive up from Menlo Park, and the traffic today was as bad as I've ever seen it. I think there's a baseball game in town. Um, And I'm solo today. Usually, I have my co-host, Irina Yen, here. She... She had the audacity to take vacation, so I'm, uh, they let me loose on, on a public audience, which could be a, a problem. Um, we have an interesting show today. We have, um, you know, I've, I've made promises that we would get out of kind of the general techie area and look at companies that are a little bit outside of the traditional, you know, storage, artificial intelligence, uh, software companies that we frequently talk about. So our first guest is uh, Chris Sakalakis. Um, you may recognize Chris's name. He has been a host on the program. And today we commandeered him to come in and wear his, the other hat as a guest. He has just recently joined Vivino, which is the world's largest wine app. Uh, he's just recently joined as CEO. He's been there for at least 30 days at this point, so he <laughs> have a lot of insights at this point. And then we're going to switch gears for the second half of the program. We have invited um, two guests, Bianca Gates and Marissa Sharkey, who are co-founders of a, a startup company called Birdie Slippers, which is a new fashion retail startup that focuses on women's slippers. So it's a, it's a pretty diverse roster. Um, for those people who are listening to us for the first time, Bay Area Ventures is the name of the program. We talk about startups and entrepreneurship and venture capital with a principal focus here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I was reflecting on this uh, yesterday. I think the program has, this program, Bay Area Ventures, has been running about three and a half years at this point. And uh, as for those of you who are familiar with our format, we typically bring in CEOs and founders and VCs to talk about, you know, what they're seeing in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, You know, the the one thing I would offer as a way of a general observation is that the industry is in a constant state of change. And it's, uh, you know, I, I teach a class on venture capital and startup companies here at Wharton. And I have to say it's a constant process, it's a constant challenge trying to stay abreast of fast-breaking developments in the industry. So on the investment side, if you look at the industry as, a, as an ecosystem of financing alternatives, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, getting a company financed in its early days was pretty simple. You would raise angel financing from a handful of people who had some spare change in their pocket. Uh, and then you'd, you'd go walk up and down Sand Hill Road and raise capital from the traditional institutional VC firms. Um, today, it's completely different. You have a, an advent of a completely new set of financing alternatives. You have crowdfunding. You've got accelerators and incubators that have come on the, st- the scene very strongly. We have the emergence of corporate VCs. Um, 10 or 15 years ago, they were very sporadic in their appearance on the landscape. Today, they are a fundamental part of the financing ecosystem. And what's interesting also to watch is how the ins- even the institutional VC firms are having to change their business models in order to be competitive uh, for the startup companies that are coming out of the woodwork here around the San Francisco Bay Area and, of course, in, on the national scene as well. And then at the upper end of the ecosystem, which is very interesting to me, you are seeing a lot of what I would call non-traditional investors. You have uh, mutual funds and hedge funds. You have sovereign wealth funds. You have um, insurance companies. Uh, Institutions that have never really had too much experience in investing in startups, but they're recognizing the potential returns that they can realize by jumping in to the, to the upper end of the ecosystem and, and where they're writing checks for substantial amounts of money. And suddenly, you know, the VCs who used to have the sandbox all to themselves are now competing with uh, other players who are rapidly developing the expertise necessary to be effective. 
And then, of course, on the other side of it, in terms of what companies are doing, this has changed a lot. And it's, it seems like every year there's a new flavor. But the investment themes are changing. Uh, today, we're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about machine learning. And we're talking about gene editing technologies like CRISPR, uh, driverless cars, space technologies, personalized medicine. It's really an interesting, it is a very interesting industry. And as I say, it's a constant challenge to uh, stay abreast of all these developments that are going on. So enough about that. Coming back to housekeeping, our program airs live uh, every Monday at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific at 7 p.m. Eastern. For those of you caught in the commute, which I almost was, um, this is for your commuting pleasure. <laughs> so we are joined now by our first guest, Chris Sakalakis. Um, as I mentioned, Chris has been a host on this program several times before, so now we're asking him to to sit on the other side of the table. He just accepted the position of CEO for Vivino. And before that, he was the president of StubHub and also was an executive at eBay for many years as well. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Doug. Great so, to be here. glad to have you aboard. Yeah. Maybe you can talk. start by talking a little bit about Vivino. You just joined 30 days ago. What is this company about? Yeah, so Vivino is the world's most popular wine app. It is the place to rate, uh, discover, and buy wine uh, in, in multiple countries around the world. We, uh, we actually are a marketplace for the purchase of wine in 10 countries and uh, operate in almost every single country where you can uh, rate wine and see how other people have rated a particular bottle of wine. The way it works is you... Uh, you have the app on your phone and uh, you use the camera on your phone to take a picture of the wine label and we tell you what it is and what other people have rated it and you can you can rate that bottle as well. So is it essentially just a rating app or is it an app where you can purchase wine as well? You can do both, yeah. So the ratings are user generated. So our community of users, we have over 30 million downloads. Our community has uh, generated uh, over 90 million ratings on oh. 9 million wines. And uh, so if you're in a store looking for, uh, to buy a bottle of wine, you can ask someone who works there if you can find someone, uh, or you can judge the wisdom of the crowd and take a photo of a couple of labels you're interested in, in to see how well they rate. Uh, if you're interested in buying some wine and don't want to go out to the store, uh, you can just do a search and find the highest rated wines within a particular uh, price, price uh, range, range yeah. uh, or a particular varietal, and uh, we'll give you basically the, the best wines for the money. So I want to jump into your background, but I've got to ask the leading question, which is how, how extensive is your knowledge of wine now that you're the CEO of this, of this wine uh, app? Well, I know how to take a cork out of a bottle, if that's <laughs> what you're asking. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not the wine expert in the same way that I wasn't a ticket expert when I got to StubHub. Um, I uh, like drinking wine. It's one of the few things I do drink. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink anything caffeinated. Uh, I drink water and I drink wine, uh, not to sound like Jesus. Um, and it's nutritional. Uh, well, <laughs> there, there are some health benefits. I, I'm also on the board of the American Heart Association here in the greater Bay Area. So there's some, some benefits to wine. But, um, and I, you know, I, I like to cook. Uh, I, I think I'm decent at it uh, after years of practice and screwing it up. So having uh, wine is a way to share an experience, share an evening with a group of friends. It's always been part of what I've done and has been for decades. But I'm not an expert in wine. I'm not a wine snob. I don't have an extensive yeah. collection. Uh, you know, I can't uh, drink something and tell you there are hints of lavender and uh, blackberry and tobacco. Like, the, I'm not going to pick up on that. I don't but it's that nice to have some intrinsic knowledge about wine before, as, since you're now heading up a company that's yeah. wine intensive. I feel where I am an expert is in marketplaces and e-commerce. Yeah. That's what I've been doing for over 20 years. So let's talk about that. Maybe just give us kind of a recap of what your experience in the last several years has been that's led up to this, uh, this new role at, at Vivino. Yeah, so I started working in e-commerce when I moved here to the Bay Area in, in 96 and uh, worked for, I, I had a little startup that did online auctions. Eventually, I went to, got to eBay in 2003, ran a few groups within uh, eBay US. Now, how big was eBay at that point? Pretty when big. I got to eBay in 2003, uh, it was a public company, had been public for maybe five years, but okay. it was probably 1,500, 2,000 people. Mm -hmm. uh, when I left, it was about 28,000. Whoa. So that was a lot of okay. growth over, over 11 and a half years. And what were you doing there? I ran a group called eBay Stores, which was a subscription-based service for higher volume eBay sellers. So you could 
list your stuff on eBay for free, but if you wanted uh, a permanent presence where people could use a URL to get to your eBay mm -hmm. store, all of your eBay stuff, um, you pay a subscription uh, to, for eBay stores, and it, it gave you a bunch of opportunities to merchandise your, your products and also a cheaper way to list your products. Are you from the Bay Area? No, I'm from Chicago. Originally. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, so you moved here after college? Uh, yes, although there are a few moves in between. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, I went from Chicago to, to Philadelphia to go to the University of Pennsylvania where an undergrad. And uh, from there, I went to Boston to work for Bain & Company. And, and with Bain & Company, I moved to London. And then I worked in Warsaw, in Poland, uh, in Moscow for about a year. Went back to the UK uh, for a year. And, and finally, uh, in, the, in 1995, I decided I really want to work in the internet industry. And after telling my British friends that, they would say, oh, yes, the internet. I must check that out. <laughs> um, I realized I needed to get out of London to actually be able to work in the industry where I wanted to work. So I moved here in 96, and I've, I've been here ever Without since. Without knowing people, you kind of just parachuted into the Bay Area? I didn't have a job lined up, but I had I had friends from, from Penn, actually. Yeah. I had Wharton friends who were here, and I had some friends from Bain & Company who were here. So I, I slept on a, a bunch of couches when I first got here before I found an apartment. And my first r job was a consulting role for a company called Big Book that did online yellow pages. And the guy I ended up working for was, uh, was a Bain alum. So either Penn or Bain, one of those connections was able to kind of get me my first place to live and, and my first job here in the Bay Area. And that was at eBay? eBay. Uh, well, e so eBay came later. So I st the first job I had was Big Book. That was in 96. eBay I got to in 2003. And again, there it was someone I knew from Bain & Company uh, who yeah. I approached because I was interested in the company. I was very interested in working at eBay. And, uh, and that's how I got my start at eBay. How long were you there before you... So you, I don't want to... I clearly don't have all the facts straight on, <laughs> on, your, on your background, but the jump you eventually you left ebay and joined stubhub but how long were you at ebay then well so uh i joined stubhub when ebay bought stubhub oh okay yeah, yeah. so technically i was at uh ebay and stubhub at the same time so i was at ebay from 2003 to the end of 2014. oh wow yeah okay. and the last eight years uh from 2000 beginning of 2007 to the la to the end of 2014 i was running stubhub like as a ceo there Yes, as the, as the president there. So yeah. for people who don't know, which has got to be a fairly small percentage of the population, what does StubHub do? StubHub is the world's largest online ticket marketplace. Can you talk about some of the growth attributes of StubHub under yeah. your leadership? Yeah, I'm just so curious to know. E eBay bought StubHub in 2007, and the, the year prior it had about $400 million in gross sales um, and had doubled in size. Uh, over the next eight years, my, my team grew that business from $400 million to $3.2 billion in oh, gross sales. Yeah. That's 2006 to 2014. What was the headcount growth like during that period? Do you know? We had 300 employees when we started, and when I left, it was 800 employees plus another three to 400 outsourced and contract-type uh, workers. So we, we grew margins from 7% to over 20%. I mean, we, we were able to... Uh, greatly Im improved profitability while we also increased the gross sales of the company. And we doubled buyer satisfaction in that period of time. Wow, that's a pretty remarkable track record. Yeah, thank and you. You must yeah, be proud I, of that. I am very proud of it. I'm, I'm very proud to be a, a, a part of it. And uh, we had a great team of people that worked really hard and that were very much customer focused and were really wanted to be the best and to be not only better than any secondary ticketing company, uh, certainly better than Ticketmaster, who was our arch enemy, and I would, I would argue to say still is for StubHub, um, but really wanted to be the best. When we, when we looked at benchmarks we wanted to hit on a customer satisfaction level, we looked at USAA, uh, the insurance company. Oh, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but their, their net promoter scores are in the uh, high 70s and 80s, uh, which is better than any other e-commerce company out there. That's remarkable, yeah. yeah. So ours were in the 60s. We, you know, we, we were way up there. We were, but we were still far behind uh, them. But what I'm trying to say is, like, we we admired the companies that were able to provide awesome customer service and satisfaction by focusing on that customer experience, and and that was in stark contrast to Ticketmaster and most of our competitors in the ticketing space. So I don't even know. Is it is it fair to characterize your roles at um, eBay and then at StubHub as essentially a consumer model? I mean, is it I know, I know that the ultimate consumer is 
retail? I mean, do you have individuals buying tickets and so forth? But yeah. is, is the business itself, is it is it that kind of a distribution? Is it that kind of a business model? Well, on the demand side, uh, it is the consumer that, that buys product. Even at eBay, you know, we were selling to sellers, but most eBay sellers are small and medium-sized businesses. There's right. They tend to be, in some cases, you know, literally a family, mom and pop. You, I would meet larger eBay sellers at eBay Live, which was an annual convention we had for eBay, eBay users. And um, the very successful sellers would, would say to me stories like, hey, you know, we started selling out of our house. We started doing really well on eBay. eBay's been able to generate all these sales for us. We're doing so well now we bought the house next door so we can sell out of there. So <laughs> you know what I mean? They didn't like <laughs> buy a warehouse or rent a warehouse. Yeah. They bought the house next door so they could sell out of there and use that for storage. So these are, for the most part, uh, not enterprises. They were um, two-person, three-person, one-person type enterprises. And so the way you sold services to them was more like a consumer than you would to an enterprise. We didn't have a sales force at e eBay The, the reason I'm asking that is I'm teeing off of your comment about customer satisfaction. I mean, th that sounds like it's been kind of an unrelenting focus on, in both your experiences at eBay and then as part of this, as the CEO of StubHub as well. I mean, customer satisfaction is a huge piece of the business, huge piece of your focus. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 my view is that if you do what your customers want, you're going to be able to build a business for the long term. Yeah. If you ignore them, then you're, you're doing it at your peril. Yeah. So for people who are just now listening in, I'm talking to Chris Sakalakis, who's just recently joined in the last month. He's become the CEO of Avino which is a wine uh, online marketplace. And we're going to learn a lot more about this sh shortly. So talk about, maybe we can we can flash forward to where Avino is today. Yeah. And maybe you can talk first about, you know, at 100,000 feet, what is the, the state of the online wine industry? Seems to me like there, mu th there must be a lot of competition out there for these kinds of, of services, isn't there? There is and there isn't. Uh, I think the... Buying wine online has been a proposition or has been uh, available to American consumers since the late 90s. I moved here in 96. Wine.com existed then, and Wine.com exists now, although it's not the same company today that it was then. I definitely have heard of Wine.com. Yeah, yeah. so, so Wine.com um, has kind of go gone through fits and starts. They acquired companies. They got acquired. The name has sort of moved around from one legal entity to another, and right now Wine.com is actually a seller on the Vivino platform. Huh. So we are able to uh, leverage our community of users, this 30 million uh, strong community of users, and get uh, wines in front of them and then give them the option to, to buy the wine. And, and in some cases, the, re the retailer uh, best able to uh, fulfill to, to provide that wine to the, to the buyer is wine.com. So it's a huge market. I mean, to use a bad expression, it's, there's this big sucking sound in the market, right? <laughs> well... <laughs> There's, so let's, let's try to break down the market okay. and, and, and try to think about it from an addressable standpoint. So worldwide, the wine business at retail is somewhere around $280, $300 billion. I believe it. Yeah. yeah. In the U.S., it's about $60 billion. So there's wow. a large world outside of the yeah. U.S., which everyone should be uh, cognizant of. But let's just say in the U.S., it's about $60 billion. The online component... Uh, the, the percentage of that business that's online really varies by country. In the United States, it's only about 5%. Uh, in other countries, it's, it's approaching the 10 to 15% of the rest of e-commerce is. When, when I moved here 22 years ago, Mary Meeker at, was at Morgan Stanley, yeah. and she was putting out these reports talking about... About the wine industry? No, she was talking about e-commerce and how big e-commerce oh, yeah. could be. And her benchmark was eventually e-commerce will be as big as catalog is. And catalog was about 5% of total U.S. retail. Yeah. And at the time, e-commerce was less than 1%, sort of like what electric cars are now. And her prediction was it'll get to 5%. Now it's 10%. So we've surpassed those numbers from 22 years ago. But in wine, at least in the United States, the, the percentage is more like 5%. Um, so in other countries, it's more like 10 or 15%, and there's more, much more of an online uh, uh, presence or penetration of, of wine sort of online penetration of wine in other markets. And a growing market? Yes, it's steadily growing, but it grows at the rate of great rate of GDP. So if, again, if you look at, oh. the, in the same way you look at ticketing, ticketing grows at the rate of GDP on an overall basis. The same is true for wine on an overall basis outside of 
markets like China where it's growing at six or seven yeah, percent per year. Yeah. The online component, however, is in, is growing at a faster rate, just like online is uh, e-commerce is growing at a much faster rate than retail overall. Um, so we feel that there's an opportunity to do online wine sales in a much better way than has been done to date. And that's what Mavino has done. And, and we're doing it on a marketplace model as opposed to an e-commerce owned inventory model. So the e-commerce owned inventory model is what wine.com wine has. They have uh, six warehouses around the U.S. that they can ship to all of all 50 mm -hmm. of the states. They own the wine. They they source the wine. They you know they're they're and then they sell it. So they buy it wholesale and sell it retail. I, I get that. Okay. So what's the what's the marketplace model? Marketplace model is, and this is true for eBay and StubHub and Vivino. The marketplace model is that Vivino acts as the marketplace, the matchmaker between the demand and supply. And so on the demand side, we have. Uh, users of Vivino, users of the app, and people who come to our website who are interested in learning more about wine and maybe interested in purchasing wine. On the supply side, we have a whole host of wine stores, retailers, and distributors, and in some cases, wineries that want to sell wine directly to consumers. So it's a platform. Exactly. Yeah. It's a platform where we bring people together. So if you're in our app and you find a wine you like, more often than not, you're going to find a buy button where you can purchase that wine and the order will go to a wine store that can get you the product uh, as efficiently as possible, but the actual transaction will happen in the app so, or on so our site. So Vivino doesn't handle any of the logistics of shipping, purchasing and shipping wine. I mean, I'll, I'll come to the financial model. In the United States. Okay. Yeah. In I the mean, United States, it does. In, in other countries, the, the, the evolution of, of Vivino was it started in 2010 in Copenhagen. Uh, the the founder uh, Heine Zachariasen, who who I um, who is my predecessor, he moved the company headquarters to the U.S. five years ago in 2013. Here in San Francisco. Yes, he moved okay. it to, uh -huh. here to San Francisco, and uh, at about the same time in uh, Denmark, they started to f test to see if maybe they could sell wine in addition to just getting people to rate wine. Yeah. And what and the approach was to take something of at the you know take an approach similar to what Gilt was doing at the time, flash sales. That, that's what was hot in 2012 or 2013. And so they, were, they found wine that was highly rated in the app that, that, that users liked, uh, but they, that could be sold at a discount. And so what they did in Denmark, because you could do it, is you could buy this wine at wholesale, uh, sell it uh, in, in small quantities by emailing the database of Vivino users, and offering it that way. And what they found was that there are lots and lots of Vivino users who are interested in, in making those purchases and, and oh, buying yeah, wine. Yeah. So a large part of the sales on Vivino are these deals that we do. Uh, in, we're in 10 countries. Uh, the US is one of them, and about half of our total sales, the rest are in Europe. And in Europe, we actually go out and we source the wine. Uh, we have warehousing partners who are, are able to ship it for us and so forth. And we drive demand to those particular wines. But again, they're wines that are already highly rated by our users and we're finding them at a good price. So maybe this is a good point just to kind of snap uh, as a snapshot on the company. How many employees were your offices? Is it venture backed? Uh, I mean, just give us, g give people a sense for kind of what the current state of play is in the company. Sure. Yeah. So uh, we have 130 employees. Mostly uh, here in Actually, mostly in Europe. So okay. we have uh, an office in Copenhagen that has about has over 50 people who are our product and technology group, mm -hmm. um, and one of the co-founders um, is there. Uh, we have uh, headquarters here in San Francisco uh, that has somewhere between 25 and 35 people, and uh, obviously those numbers are both increasing. Yeah, uh, and we have sales, marketing. Uh, we have marketing based here. We have the finance group based here. We have a, a U.S. sales team. We have a U.S. deals team. Uh, we have a U.S. customer service team. Uh, in Dublin, we have about a dozen people who are focused on sales and uh, customer service. And then in each of the countries in which we operate, we have at minimum one person, in some cases only one person, but one to three people who go out and understand the wine community, are able to source these deals, and, uh, and can provide the supply for the deals that we send out in those and countries. So, so the, the companies, I think you said the company's principal market is split equally between the United States and Europe. Is that a fair statement? That's right, yes, because uh, the company was born in Europe. Uh, the first deals were done in Europe. Uh, the U.S. came later. And the marketplace part of the business that I described has only been around for two years. 
So deals started first, and then we started going out directly to retailers and, and asking them, would you like to sell directly on the platform? So I've heard a lot about the Chinese market exploding in terms of yeah. at least interest in, I don't know about European, probably European wines is too. You know, my wife, uh, her family was a winemaker, so all I hear about ah. is California wines. I don't know sure. anything about European wines. But um, I've heard that there's this huge interest, demand on the part of uh, a lot of, you know, folks in China who want to access I assume both California and European wines. Is that something that you guys plan on getting into? Yes, indeed. So we're just uh, about to launch in Hong Kong. We already have users. The beauty of, of Avino as a business is that we have users around the world. We have a huge presence in Brazil as, a, as an example, but we don't yet sell wines in Brazil. Mm -hmm. We don't yet have a platform for the purchase of wines in Brazil. Um, Hong Kong and other parts of Asia, and including uh, China, where we we have you know tens of thousands of users, uh, so we will we are setting up shop in Hong Kong. We are looking to set up shop in China as well, and of course there's there are plenty of entrenched players. There 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 are at least five um, Chinese players that have done a copy of the Vino really in, in the country. Yeah, they they started out with kind of a direct copy and paste of a Vino and ha have evolved the product over time. Um, interesting. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you so. Just to finish off the snapshot, the company is because it helps to, to me to kind of to, to calibrate on the kind of company that Vivino is. Venture backed, venture backed, um, Series C. So uh, fifty-seven million dollars have been raised over four rounds. U.S. VCs or European VCs? Uh, they're all European. Uh, so the initial one of the first initial investors was Janus Fries, who's the co-founder of Skype. Oh, um, yeah. So his fund is still involved. We have Creandum, whose uh, biggest investment to date has been Spotify. Creandum is based in in Sweden, hmm. um, and then uh, and uh, Balderton Capital, which used to be Benchmark, I've heard of it. yep, for sure, Benchmark for Europe, yep. yep. Um, and then we have SCP Neptune, which is the um, family fund of uh, Christoph Navari, who is the former CEO of Moet Hennessy. So a strategic investor. Yes, indeed. He knows the business really well. Yeah. And he was running Moet Hennessy when he made his first investment, uh, but is now retired from that from that role. But so, he still so is very connected in the wine. So, industry. Chris, before you stepped into Vivino, had you heard of any of these investors before? I mean, in your experience at eBay and at StubHub, had you had occasion to cross paths with any of these European investors? I'd heard of uh, Balderton and had talked to them. Yeah, uh, sp uh, there was a period of time when I was looking at opportunities in the UK. Um, I, I worked at Benchmark <laughs> as an entrepreneur in residence, yeah. so, I, so obviously I was familiar with the investments, some of the investments that Balderton or Benchmark Europe had made. Um, Creandum and SCP Neptune I hadn't heard of. Janus uh, I, I'd heard of. Uh, eBay f famously bought Skype, uh, and Janus and his uh, co-founder Nicholas uh, Zenstrom were people that I had met once and knew who they were. Um, but. Uh, so yes, it's sort of a mix. Um, it, it's a little but unusual. It's sort of also kind of a new cultural um, experience for you. I mean, this is not your usual homegrown, traditional VC, US VC-backed tech company here right. in the Bay Area. Yeah, it is, it's, not, it's not that. And it's, not, uh, it's, it's a slightly different view of business and, and uh, the world. I would say that the group is much more international and worldly in their view. Um, having been in the venture community and talked to a lot of venture investors, yeah. a lot of them, a lot of them may have the attitude. And I don't mean to be negative. Have the attitude of, well, if it's in the if it's in the Bay Area, then I might be interested in making the investment. But if it's not, I, you know, I don't want to be flying. To I've heard this meetings. before, by the way. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's so inconvenient to invest money in a company that might be outside of the Bay Area. And so this this is a group that is used to investing uh, in companies that are not drivable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and also have very much a, an international outlook, um, and have connections internationally as That's well. That's interesting because I, I mean, I have very limited. When I was in my lawyering days, I worked with a few companies that were European backed or backed by Canadians who kind of brought the European flavor with them. There are def definite regional differences in the way they thought about company operations and management. I, yeah. I don't know. We don't need to get into that, but I was 
it sounds like it's going to be kind of an interesting experience as you plow forward. It will be. Look, everything's everyone's been great so far. It's yeah. I'm in the honeymoon period. I, I literally started on March 13th, so it's less than 30 days, and my first board meeting is a week from today. So we'll see exactly so how far, it goes. So far, so good. <laughs> yeah, but the the people have been awesome. Everyone is really positive on the prospects of the business and has a great can-do attitude. So before we go to a break here, I wanted uh, just one question. Would maybe you can spend a moment. What is the financial model? What's how does how does uh, the Vino make money? Well, like most marketplaces, the the model is one of sales commission. So on every sale, the Vino makes a commission. We essentially bring the order to the wine retailer and we we take a cut um, and in the case of our deals we uh, in europe at least will buy it wholesale and sell it retail so we we make a gross profit there so this is not a subscription model you don't you don't charge users a, a, a subscription fee for coming on to the app no for ratings and so forth in in the past uh vivino had they had charged like a kind of a premium version of the app to get more features. Yeah. Uh, but now we do have something called Vivino Premium, but that is, uh, it's a delivery program. So you can pay $47 a year to get free shipping on all your wine for that year. Wow, interesting stuff. Um, stay with us. We're going to take a short break here. I'm Doug Collum. Our guest this hour is Chris Sakalakis, the CEO of Vivino. Um, we're going to continue our conversation. I'm actually, I want to shift in our the second half of our of the hour, I'd like to, what I'd like to do, Chris, is to step back from Vivino and talk more about some of your thoughts and insights about leadership in a grow in a growing company. Because these are, I mean, there's blocking and tackling that's involved here that we don't often talk about on the program. So, for people listening in, stay with us. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio. Obviously, we have a producer with a sense of humor. Uh, I'm Doug Collum. Our guest this hour is Chris Sakalakis, the new CEO of Vivino, which is a remarkable online wine marketplace. Um, when we left off, we were talking with Chris about kind of the, 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 uh, the path that took him to Vivino and some of the basic aspects of the Vivino business. And at this point, what I'd like to do is to kind of step back a little bit and talk more about some of the management attributes or management aspects of uh, what it means to step into a company that's established. And, you know, there at some point, I assume, Chris, the honeymoon period wears off and people as they would with any CEO, start looking steely-eyed at how you're doing and how the company's growth is going and so forth. Um, maybe I would start with the question, which is how did Vivino come up on your radar screen? How did, how did this all come to pass? Well, I started using the app three years ago. Um, Vivino was... Oh, you had. This is yeah. not just a... Yeah, it wasn't like completely random. I mean, I'd been pitched plenty of, of things I had never heard of the product uh, before. But in this instance, I, I had the app. I'd used it. Um, at the same time, there was another company that came out uh, doing something similar. I used it a little bit. I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. But I, then I kind of hadn't used it in a long time. And when the recruiter called, and the recruiter was someone I knew from eBay. Yeah. So that was helpful. Uh, she called and said, no, uh, you know, this, it's this great opportunity. I think you'd be great for it. And uh, it's a marketplace, and it's called Vivino. I'm like, Vivino's a marketplace? I, I had no idea. I thought it was just a you know, an app where you can scan wine labels. It's like, no, 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 you can buy wines. And I'm like, really? And so I asked a couple of friends of mine in the wine industry what they thought of it. And they're like, oh, yeah, these guys are killing it. They're, they're, sale, they're driving a lot of sales. One of, them, one of these friends is actually a winemaker. And I said, oh, okay, so you can buy wine in this thing? So I went no. back into the app after, literally after three years and did a very quick search. There are things that were already being recommended to me based on the things, the wines I had I had scanned three years ago. Yeah. Um, and I, it was just so easy to actually buy the wine. And as going through the checkout process, like, well, that could be better. This could be better. I started to see some things because, A, because I'm really anal retentive, and B, because I've been in e-commerce a long time. I started seeing some some little details that could be improved to actually make the experience better for a consumer. And at that point, I was, 
I said, yeah, this is interesting. Tell me more about the company. Let me see the numbers and give me a sense as to why you're looking for another CEO because that's the first question yeah. I always ask. What happened? You're right. Yeah, and so this was, I, I you know, over the course of two, between two thousand the end of 2014 and the beginning of this year, I'd been pitched maybe 250 different roles. Half of them were CEO roles. And with the CEO roles, I always asked, why do you need another CEO? And of course, the answer is always like, the current CEO is great, but they just need someone to take it to the next level. And <laughs> that's always the surface answer. Yeah. So it, it's really the next set of questions that gets you to something more. And there are basically two categories of CEO replacement searches. One is the, the company is not doing well. It is um, slowly sinking. And uh, while we're not underwater yet, we need someone to come and bail water for us. That's one. Yep. And the other is the And typically that's initiated by the board or somebody else that's influential in yes, the company. The, the board decides who the CEO is. That's their main job. Yep. Um, and so the, in the other case, uh, the, the company is doing well, but the current CEO either doesn't want to continue or doesn't have the kind of necessary skill set to get it to the next level. And, and sees that himself or herself. Sometimes, and sometimes it's yeah. with the board's prodding. So that's, that's another factor, like how interested is the current CEO in this replacement? Uh, no kidding. They, yeah. all, they always say like, oh yeah, this is the right thing, and then you get into conversations and the resentment comes out. The, the, and, body, lang yeah. the body language is there. Not yeah. just that, like, you know, I had one guy say to me like, the, at, at this one company, they had brought in an interim CEO and they were just about to launch their product that they had been working on for years. And I talked to the founder who is now in a VP role and yeah. they said, yeah, they, they, they bring in this interim guy and he's, he's about to take all the, all the credit. We've been working on this for so long. He's just babysitting us. And, and I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> I didn't even ask him specifically about the interim CEO. Yeah. So this was, uh, Vivino was a good, one of the good situations where the company was doing well, it was growing. There's still a lot of room for growth. Uh, and the founder was very open to bringing on someone who could teach him and could actually bring some expertise that he didn't have. I, I, I honestly think, and I'll say this about myself, I don't have the expertise the, uh, and the, the necessary drive to start a business from scratch. It's, it's very difficult to do. I've tried it a couple of times, um, and I've, I've failed. Um, so it is a special skill to be a founder, to launch yourself off and say, this is something I want to do, I really believe in this, and to believe in it wholeheartedly when everyone is telling you, either directly or indirectly, that it's not going to work. Um, that's a very special skill, one that I don't have. I'm very clear on that. Um, where I do feel I have capability, and this is where the, we have the meeting of the minds, is I've, I've been able to take something that's working and get it to the next level, to actually scale the business and think about how you provide systems and discipline and processes and, and think about a broader market than maybe what was originally envisioned. Those are the things that I've, I felt like it's I was really the ability to, to step back from the trees and start and to look at things strategically. Is that how you would describe that skill? I, yeah, I would say both strategically and systematically uh, because s sometimes what happens is people work really hard and you get good results, but you don't necessarily look back and understand how did you do that and what are the processes yeah. to do it again. Yeah. Um, it's one thing to, you know, it was one thing for McDonald's to get their first restaurant off the ground to actually make it work and be profitable, but it's another thing to actually create processes and systems where you have thousands and tens, hundreds of thousands of copies of this yeah. thing and you have the same consistency in, uh, of product and experience. Well, I also think the Vino is a unique circumstances too. It's simply because, as, as you just pointed out, when you stepped in, there are two co-founders of the company who continue with the company. Mm -hmm. And in effect, and for a company with, what, 130, 150 employees, yep. you say? 130. You're basically stepping in, and it's not just finding a space for yourself chemically um, within the leadership team of the company, but it, the entire organization is sitting up and paying attention to who this new guy is coming in. So maybe, I mean, maybe you can comment on what has it been like or has it, has it presented a particular challenge to come into a company where you have co-founders who continue actively in leadership roles in the company? 
it hasn't been a challenge so far, but I, I thought it could be. And I'd been told by others, not specifically about Vivino, but by other situations, that you, you never want a wounded prince to rule the kingdom, to walk around in the kingdom. Meaning yeah, yeah. any CEO who's replaced should be taken out immediately and, and shouldn't should be barred from the office, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard that wisdom too, but yeah. it depends. It depends on who it is. And, yeah. and I felt like Heine, the, uh, the founder of, of Avino, uh, was very much an adult. That's not true of all founders. <laughs> in uh, there's, a maturity, there's a maturity level involved here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mature guy, kind of understood his strengths and understood his weaknesses. And the approach we agreed on is, please help me. Uh, get through this transition to understand the business the way that you understand the business. I will never replace you as a founder. You will always be the founder of the, of the business. That'll never, ever change. Um, but help me understand the business. Help me through this transition and help um, help people understand that this has your blessing. Uh, because, again, it was a situation where the CEO uh, is, uh, was and is still <laughs> well-liked yeah. and respected. And it was important to me that people understood that we're doing this together. This, isn't, this wasn't a, a ploy by the board to push someone out and bring in their own guy. Heine was just as involved in the interviewing process as any of the other board members, and he remains on the board. And the other co-founder, uh, Tice, who runs uh, product and all of technology, was also involved in the interview process. So it was, I think, it is a good situation as opposed to others where uh, there is this kind of forced removal, and you have to come in and and re-educate the leadership team, and they're like, "Who is this guy?" And I don't know. If I, I mean, I would, I would, I, again, I'm just surmising, but you know, you you parachute in. There's a new sheriff in town, and effectively, with the endorsement of the co-founders and the board and all that, your mission, which you've accepted, is to basically create a new strategic or, or an enhanced strategic direction for the company. And that requires change. I mean, it, it seems to me implicitly that there's some element of change going on when you bring on board a new CEO. And yeah. so how, how does one go about earning the uh, respect and loyalty of the employees? How do you make the machine continue to hum when you've got somebody else sitting at the helm running the controls? I mean, is that something, is there a silver bullet for that, or is it just an evolutionary process? I, I don't know if there's a silver bullet for it, and I don't know if what I'm doing now is going to be successful or, or yeah. considered successful. However, what I feel so far is, is working, what I've been trying to do is to come up, come into the company with some humility and respect. I have experience, I have a perspective from what I've done before, but the reasons that this company, that Vivino has been successful to date, aren't fully aren't fully clear to me because I don't know the business, I don't have the history, and I don't want to jump in and say, this is what you should do, follow me, or, or else. The approach that I have taken and what I told people the first day I started was, I want to learn. I like being a student. The, the whole reason for taking the job is an opportunity for me to learn. I certainly know something about marketplaces and e-commerce, but it wouldn't be interesting to me if it was just you know another ticketing marketplace or something I've done before. So it's a new industry, it's a new opportunity, uh, new set of challenges, and I wanted to learn. And, and particularly, I wanted to learn from the people at the company. So I started to go around. I've only gotten to maybe 30 people out of the 150, 130. But I've, I've, I've had a very simple script, and I told people, this is what I'm going to ask you. What's working? What's not working or can be improved? And of those things, what's the one thing you'd want to fix first? Mm -hmm. And that created a discussion and a dialogue. And those conversations were ones where I started with understanding who the, who the person was, where they come from, why were they at Vivino, and then asking them, you know, what's working and what's not working. And I, I've, I've gotten pretty consistent answers over the last 30 days. And that's allowed me to get a, a better appreciation of the company. Uh, it's allowed me to show that I'm interested in learning from people at Vivino as opposed to imposing my own point of view. Yep, yep. And it's something that I hope will allow me to uh, set a direction and uh, some clear, build some clear plans that are based on this fact base, on, on what people have told me, on what people at the company really believe in and what they believe about the company. So for people just joining us, our guest this hour is Chris Sakalakis. We're talking about Vivino, a new online wine marketplace. 
and uh, Chris has been on board for less than 30 days, so he's, uh, <laughs> he's sharing with us some observations about how one goes about, how, how a new CEO goes about integrating himself into the, into the culture of the business. So on the cultural side, I mean, there's always this, uh, this adage that, you know, it's tone at the top. There's, every company has a culture, and it's, it's unavoidable. Whether you choose to acknowledge it or not, you have a new CEO in town. Uh, any thoughts about culture and how one goes about motivating employees and keeping people working with a kind of a single point of focus? I, I have a lot of thoughts about culture. I've had some, um, I, had, I had an experience at StubHub where uh, I came in and you know it was my first opportunity to run a company and my approach was like, let's just keep doing what we're doing and, and keep making it better. And after a couple of years, after two, three years, the company was doing really well, but I felt like people didn't feel like they, we were doing well. They didn't, they didn't seem as happy as I thought they should be based on the financial results, let's put it that way. And people would ask me, so what's the culture at StubHub like? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I had Whatever. no idea even how to <laughs> define it. I really, to be honest, I really kind of, I totally discounted it. You know, that was just my naive view of culture. And what I found was we really needed to focus on this as an opportunity uh, to kind of improve the culture of the business. And I hired a new head of HR. Uh, Scott Day is his name. He's at Just Open in Day. the last 30 days? No, no, I'm sorry. This oh. was at StubHub. Oh, okay. I yeah. brought in a yeah. new head of HR. And, um, and together, with, done with a lot of work, again, by finding people internally to StubHub, we're able to define the culture, define the values that we wanted. More importantly, define the, our big, hairy, audacious goal, the, the vision of the business. Because we were already, the, the vision of the business when I got to StubHub was to be bigger than eBay in terms of tickets sold and to go public. Well, they didn't go public, they sold to eBay. And a month after the deal closed, uh, StubHub had gross sales greater than those of, of eBay in the US for tickets. So check in, check. Check, done, right. done. And three years later, that, that, that vision of the future hadn't been replaced. So what I'm doing now at Vivino, and this was a process that started a little bit before I started uh, there, is to define, let's define what the BHAG is. Let's define what the purpose is for the business. Let's define what the values are. And it's not like they, no one's ever thought of it. So it's an affirmative exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it's a positive exercise. And it's one of, it's not one of sort of creating something from whole cloth and starting from scratch. It's really one of taking a bunch of ideas and loose statements about the business and trying to consolidate them into a statement that we use con consistently when we talk about the business. And so part of that process is obviously the, the co-founders of the business, but we have our, our head of communications, we have our head of marketing, uh, we have our head of design um, who's involved, and I'm involved in the process more as an observer to kind of help right. them understand what But this is what a process is. you're actively going through now. Right now. Right now we're doing it. Yeah. We actually had a meeting about it this morning. And I'm going to take the board through some of it. And to some, you know, setting this vision and mission, people are like, ah, that's stuff you put Sounds on the loose Sounds kind of touchy feeling. Yeah, and, yeah. It's, and kind of BS. <laughs> yeah. I even got feedback when I was at eBay, like, ah, that's, just, you know, I find that's something that motivates people for yeah. a year or two. But we set a 10-year BHAG at, at uh, StubHub. What is that word? B I'm sorry, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Oh, okay. So the, the vision for the business. <laughs> and we're doing the same thing for, for Vivino, and I know from experience that it is a point of energizing people. It will energize people. Now, we're not going to have a, BHAG, uh, a, a vision that says we're going to have a trillion dollars under assets, yeah, yeah. Which, which is what Charles Schwab had, or we're going to reach a certain level of revenue. That's not a motivator for non-financial types. Yeah. It's really about the impact we want in the world and, and where, we where we want our place in the world to be. That's what it's about. And once you define that and set it out, that becomes the North Star of the business. That's always where you're going. And it allows everyone at the, all the employees to focus on that North Star and think about what can I do in my day-to-day -day job to actually get us closer to that North Star. This idea that I have will get us in that direction, going in that direction. And, it, and, it, and at StubHub, it was a huge energizer, and I'm sure it would be at, at Vivino as well. So to answer your question, in order to motivate people, you have to start with, let's be clear about where we want to end up, where it is we're going. Yeah. And what we stand for, that's what values are. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And so being clear about what we value in, in what we do with our customers and, and, and how we work together. And those values have to be ones that we use, that we, 
that are used consistently for screening uh, when we're hiring someone, and then when we're looking at promotions and whether or not we keep someone, that it's another filter we use, yeah. values, that type of thing. So that hasn't happened yet, but that's the whole purpose of going through this exercise of setting the, the vision, the mission, the values for the company. So we have a few minutes left, but let me, I'd like to stay on the subject. So I, I hear the words. You, you basically create the vision, you create the, you unify the, the, the collective goal of the, of the company. Then what? I mean, it, does this vision ultimately become measurable? Then you start measuring performance and operational achievements on the basis of whether you're closer to this this vision that you've created? Yes, it, it kind of sets out uh, at the base level some metrics you're gonna look at. And more importantly, it because it's a multi-year journey, it allows you to plan the first year uh, and be clear that th the stuff you're doing this year will get you closer to that long-term journey. You, you start creating steps um, to, to get to that goal. Think of it as the, you know, it's the top of the mountain and it's going to take many steps to get to that top of the mountain. So you start planting the first set of steps to move you upwards to the top of the mountain. So um, is, that, is that your principal focus now? I mean, assuming everything goes swimmingly and you're, you're learning the business and you've got a vision set and you've got goals set, any other, within the next minute or so, any other kind of fundamental operational aspects of the business that you see as lying on your plate? There are lots, but uh, uh, to summarize... <laughs> We have, you know, we have this, we're going to have this long-term vision. We have 2018 goals that are set, and then those have to be broken down into their constituent components. So we have a, a gross sales target that's yep. broken down into orders and average order size, and then orders are broken down into traffic or number of people who use our app times the percentage of, of, of our users who actually make an order. And then that's further broken down into how many people buy and how often do they buy and so forth. And all of that it's essentially a mathematical equation that gets broken down further and further, but the more you break it down, the more you can start assigning responsibilities to particular groups of people who are gonna go after, let's say, traffic and increasing our monthly active users, or are gonna go after conversion, converting orders, uh, users into buyers. Um, those are the things that you can set, once you set very high-level goals, it's very, very important to start breaking it down in a way that each and every individual within the company has ownership of something that drives those goals so that everyone understands the direct connection point between their work and that long-term goal that we're trying to achieve. That's a lot of the work that I'm doing right now. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like it covers a lot of waterfront and requires a lot of uh, interaction with people. It does. And it starts at the top. Um, and it starts with explaining this approach as well, which is a little different than the things that have been done in the past. Um, so that's, that's the process I'm going through right now. At that, really, at the at this very minute. Good luck to you. I have to say, it's, <laughs> thank it's, you. Uh, you've, you've you've got a you've got a tall mountain to climb here, and actually, it'd be fun to come come back to you and like within the next six to twelve months and see how things are going. Yeah, yeah. that'd be fun. Anyway, thanks for joining us. It's been a great thank to you. have you on the show. Um, to find out more information about Vivino, how do we get? You go to vivino dot com dot com pretty straightforward just ahead we'll be talking with bianca gates and marissa sharkey co-founders of birdie's slippers a new retail fashion startup that focuses on women's slippers um, we don't have enough founders frankly on the program who are women so we'll have an interesting story to tell uh, in the next hour i'm doug Collum. you're listening to bay area ventures on business radio sirius xm channel 111 for more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.